Hey everyone, it's Alex from Alex and Books, and you're listening to The Reader's Journey, the podcast that takes you on a journey to meet amazing authors, discover brilliant books, and learn valuable lessons along the way. Now, let's get started. Hello everyone, my guest today is David Cadavy, the author of The Heart to Start, Stop Procrastinating, and Start Creating. Thank you, David, for coming on the show today. Oh, Alex, it is an honor to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I read your book, and I'm also a fan, fan of your podcast, but for listeners who are just hearing about you for the first time today, can you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah. I mean, I guess given the context of what we'll be talking about today, I could, I could just start with where I started, where I am now. So where I started was I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, middle of nowhere by a lot of people's standards, um, lived in a cold, grew up in a cul-de-sac in a suburb, you know, just... Um, almost like a white picket fence type thing. I'm currently sitting in Colombia, which is where I now live. Um, and th- this is my apartment. These, this is my furniture. These are my books. Uh, and, uh, you know, I spend my day writing in English. Uh, I spend my evening conversing with my, uh, with my girlfriend in Spanish. And uh, it is... Uh, amazing. Sometimes I, I, I look at my life now, I'm just like, how did I end up here? Um, and so I think, you know, that might be some of what we'll, we'll be talking about today. And, and that's the, the, the kind of the focus of my work uh, now is, is helping people navigate the uncertain waters of creating, of discovering who they are, um, and, and figuring out how to get past whatever barriers are in the way to going from idea to putting their work into the world. Totally. So is that what inspired you to write this book? You had, uh, you had, you had to overcome some creative obstacles and you want to share how to do it and share that with readers. Yeah. So the heart to start, uh, I, the book just sort of came out of me. Uh, I think it was, you know, me sitting down here in Columbia. Um, I guess the book came out two and a half years ago now and and kind of saying to myself, well, gosh, all right, you, yeah, I grew up in Nebraska. I almost lived like the sort of template life that I was more likely to live, having uh, gr- grown up in the situation that, that I did, especially pre-internet. I mean, you could live in Omaha now; it probably wouldn't make any difference. Um, but when you're you're growing up and there's no internet and like you can only hang out and talk to people that live in your neighborhood, like it's a pretty alienating experience. Um, if you have any sort of unique interests. Uh, and so I ended up getting out of Nebraska. I, I, I worked in Silicon Valley for a few years. Um, I then ended up in Chicago for, for eight years, and now I'm, I'm living in, in Columbia. And along the way, I did uh, work for startups, started some of my own companies. I wrote a, a book uh, called Design for Hackers that was a bestseller. And I guess I was reflecting on the experience, like, well, how did I get there? Because there was so much along the way where I had certain ideas in my head or, or, or feelings or things that I wanted to try, but kind of the world that I was living in, the world that was around me was pushing back against all of that. And it was, um, not helpful 
to my inner psyche because along with the doubts of, hey, that's a weird idea, uh, was my own self-doubt. And um, so along the way, was somehow able to, to manage to get past all of those things, uh, narrowly escape living the wrong life, and and end up in the life that I'm in today that I'm I'm very grateful for. And so I really wanted to just make an inventory of the things that I tell myself whenever I do get stuck, because all that does come back. You never really uh, escape that cultural programming or or that self-doubt that you might have. Uh, and it, 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 it works because, you know, to this day, I very often will find myself maybe a little stuck on something and I'll remember like, oh, you wrote in the heart to start. Remember you wrote, um, about the fortress fallacy. You're, you're, you're falling for the fortress fallacy right now. And then I'll, you know, snap into, into shape and, and, and get moving. So that's often the motivation behind, uh, I'm realizing a lot of the books that I write is that I have develop some way of understanding how to approach a thing. And now I want to solidify that, uh, in, in my own mind. So I think that was a lot of the motivation behind the heart to start. Totally. Yeah. I think anyone that tries to do something creative, they're going to face these, uh, common obstacles that we all face. I think your book kind of serves as like a manual of what to do. If you encounter X, Y, Z, this is how to get over it. Yeah. I, I think that, um, it, it from from my personal uh, psyche, it is pretty exhaustive. It is pretty. I almost never run into a situation where I'm procrastinating on a creative project, and I can't find something that I've written about. Um, you know, from my own psyche, and it appears from the the Amazon reviews, from the 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 emails I get from people that that is the case for for a lot of people. Perfect. So um, I think a great place to start where we talk about art is self-actualization. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So I look at art as it's not necessarily paintings and macrame or anything. It, it's really just taking your unique, something unique about you, your unique interests, your unique experiences, and injecting all of that into something that you create that touches other people in, in, in some way. Uh, and that could be a nonprofit that you build that could, uh, be your day to day work. That could be a podcast that could be a book that you write. Uh, but almost by definition arts, there's not like a little cutout in the world where your art is just going to fit there because we have developed this world where people are interchangeable parts. Um, and we go to school to, to learn how to be, uh, to, to learn a certain set of skills or ways, way of thinking, ways of thinking. And your art isn't necessarily going to, uh, match up against that. And almost by definition, it's, it's not going to, you're going to run into, situations where you're like you have an idea but it doesn't necessarily fit into the status quo um and that's going to cause a little bit of self-doubt along the way and so to create that art to create this representation of yourself you yourself have to go through this journey from going from this person who is told a certain way to be to being who you actually are 
that's the only way that you're going to be able to create uh, this unique thing. Totally, yeah. Uh, going, going, uh, being creative, you have to go on that journey to discover yourself and discover your art. And you also mentioned in the book, like if you don't create your art, you start to act out in like different ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? I have discovered that like when I find myself acting in a way that I don't necessarily understand, like the example I use in the book is I, I, I used to really actually have this fantasy. Like if I was ever in a library and it'd be like really quiet, I'd be thinking like, what if I just like jumped on this table and started acting like a monkey and then like ran over to that bookshelf and just like cleared all the books off on the ground. And like, why am I even having that thought? But I've realized like, as I've gotten more and more, um, congruence between who I actually am and, and, and what I'm doing, uh, day to day and, and, and a level of comfort with how I fit in or don't fit in in the world, I find I have a lot fewer <laughs> thoughts like that. Like, I think it's, 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 you, you start to act out. Um, there's another story I tell in the book about Helen Keller and how, um, you know, she was blind and, and deaf and she couldn't speak and she had a lot of behavioral problems be, be, because of it. You know, she like locked uh, the caretaker up in the upstairs uh, uh, room and then her father had to like get a ladder and help her escape and everything. But it wasn't until uh, Helen learned that there were uh, that objects in the world had had names that then she could she could take these these amorphous feelings that she had and assign words to them, whether or whether it was objects around the house or feelings that she had. And I think that it can be that way with our own creative language is that if you aren't, if you have, uh, if you aren't getting a chance to express yourself, if you don't have the creative vocabulary with which to express yourself, you, you start to act funny and you, you don't necessarily know why you're that way. But the more that you are able to um, you get a chance to express yourself and start to develop this grab bag, kind of like I have now where, you know, there'll be days where I'm a little off and I realize, well, I need to write in my journal. I need to write a blog post. I need to, um, make a, a, a podcast, or maybe I should work on a new book. Uh, once you get that, that vocabulary with which to express yourself, then there starts to be a much tighter, better connection between what you're feeling and your actual actions. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe, but there's like something deep down inside of you or in every person, actually, that, you know, part of them wants to be creative. And if they ignore that, it's going to come back to like bite them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you just will, will find yourself doing things that maybe you yourself don't even understand. And um, so like once people get over that hump and they start creating art, I think uh, one thing you mentioned in the book is that they encounter the ego and how it stops them from uh, creating the artwork. And I just want to read a quote from your book because I think it'll uh, set the tone. Um, if you put your art out there, it might not be any good. So the ego will come up with excuses to not start. You're still doing research. You don't have the time or there's a crack on your laptop screen. Whatever excuses your ego comes up with, they'll never be about you. They'll always be about some outside force. But the excuses really come from inside. And I just really love that quote and how it hits you like, it's not an outside force. It's like an inside force. Can you just uh, share a little, little bit more about that? 
Yeah. I mean, this is something that I find my, I catch myself doing all the time. Um, y- you know, like I might, I might, uh, start to write something and I'm a little scared because I don't necessarily know what I'm going to be writing and I'm just starting my session. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden I re- all my glasses are smudged. I need to go clean my glasses. Oh, I'm thirsty. I better go get something to drink. Like, Oh, do I need to go to the bathroom? I don't know. Maybe I do. And I just have to to level with myself there and realize that it's it's a a coping mechanism. It's an it's an escape. It is a chance for me to uh, if you if you attempt something, if you create something, then you put yourself in a scary position that it didn't work. Maybe uh, maybe it didn't turn out as good as you thought it would be. Maybe you wanted it to affect people in a certain way, and it didn't do that. Uh, and there's no shortage of excuses or scapegoats that you can put out there, uh, that will help you wrap yourself in that warm blanket of, well, I didn't, I didn't write that book today. I didn't ship that blog post today. Um, and it was because X, Y, Z. Well, that can feel a lot better than, Hey, I did ship that blog post today and nobody liked it. Nobody read it. Nobody commented. Nobody sent me an email. It felt like I was uh, just screaming into the void. That's an uncomfortable feeling. So we prefer the feeling of being able to have a good excuse why things didn't work out. And that's a, a tough wrestling match to, to, to end up on top of. Right. Yeah. It's like the ego is actually not protecting you. It's just more like preventing you from starting your artwork. And I think so on one side you have the ego and like fear stopping you, but on the other side you have a curiosity and how you can use curiosity to kind of fuel your creative uh, spirit. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I personally find creativity to be a wonderful fuel and it's a bit of an, e- an ego absorbing fuel. Um, if, if you're curious about something, then you can work harder on it than something that you're not curious about. Uh, and this, is, this can be a tough journey, though, because we are taught to be ashamed of our curiosity. You know, if we were doodling in class, if we were daydreaming, that didn't usually work out too well. I mean, at least not the schools that I went to. Um, you were chided for that. This isn't Montessori. Uh, maybe maybe Montessori's like that. I don't know. But uh, you, you, you... A lot of people come to me and they are ashamed of having what they call shiny object syndrome. This is where you start a project and you're excited about it and you get sort of started on the projects and then you get excited about some other project and you get started on, on, on that project. And yeah, there can be some ego in that and just kind of like what I talked about that following through and finishing the project is, is, is going to, uh, expose you to potential disappointment. And, and so maybe you're better off, uh, moving from one project to another, but there's more to it than that. Uh, again, like the, the, the turning of humans into, interchangeable parts means that we've been raised to, well, you're going to learn how to do this function. 
and you say you're going to be an accountant or you're going to sell cars or, or, or what have you, and you're going to learn how to do that. And so if you are curious about something else that's totally unrelated to that, that's a bad thing. That doesn't take you closer to that goal. But the world doesn't really work that way anymore. If it can be done in a series of steps, you're better off not learning how to do it, really, because a computer can do it. If a computer can't do it yet, it soon will. That job is not going to exist. More and more, we have to be doing things that have never been done before. Um, we have to be able to put something into the world where there isn't a space cut out for that thing to fit just yet. And in order, in order to do that, um, I find curiosity to be a great way to do it, not just because it's such a great fuel, such a great uh, motivator. Like when was the last time you worked on something where you just lost track of time of it? A lot of us can't even answer that question. Maybe it was when we were a kid in our room, if we got some time, we were doing something we escaped. And ever since then, we've been doing the thing that we're told. And we don't even know what that feels like anymore. I know when I started on my own, uh, my first day self-employed 13 years ago, I didn't even know what that felt like anymore. And so that was my first uh, mission was just reconnect with that feeling of losing track of time, of being very curious uh, about something. And to let that drive me, in part just because the alternative was playing Guitar Hero down the hall and I wanted, I needed to, if I was going to be productive, I was going to have to do something that was more interesting to me than playing Guitar Hero. Now, another cool thing about curiosity is curiosity uh, is a path to originality. Because when you follow your curiosities, say you have various curiosities, um, eventually those things converge. And suddenly you're in this place where nobody has ever been before. Uh, the most famous story of this is probably Steve Jobs and his Stanford commencement address talks about how he took a, a calligraphy class and they had no practical application whatsoever in his life, but he was just fascinated by it. Well, years later, when he and Waz were building the Mac, they revolutionized computing, thanks in part to the things that Jobs learned in that calligraphy class. And it's like that over and over again. It takes time. It certainly uh, was something for me where I was interested in, uh, in art and then I was interested in the internet. Those things didn't have anything to do with each other in 1996 when I started uh, playing with the internet. And then eventually I got a graphic design degree and then eventually I ended up working in Silicon Valley and I got connected to entrepreneurship. And then I got this wonderful opportunity to write a book called Design for Hackers, um, you know, which didn't sell a million copies, but it sold a lot of copies in its niche. And uh, it was a unique thing. There's not a book out there that's just like it. Uh, and, and, and so this is continuous, continually uh, my compass is curiosity. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I think there's a quote where it says, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you could connect the dots looking backwards. And as long as you're following your curiosity, like for myself, I was interested in books. So I started reading books and then I started a blog where I share book recommendations. I started a social media channel and now here I am doing a podcast with the authors of books I enjoyed. And like, I couldn't see that, you know, three years ago looking forward, but looking backwards, it all makes sense. Well, it's cool because it also motivates you. I mean, you probably love reading books, but it also probably motivates you to read even more books. 
uh, to, to do more of something that you would like uh, to do more of, even though, you know, uh, playing Guitar Hero might be more fun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. In the moment. <laughs> and um, so we have curiosity. We should follow that. And there's also this voice in our head that we should listen to. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I've noticed something, and actually Seth Godin has written about this uh, in his book, Unleashing the Idea Virus, this idea of a vacuum, this idea that there's this gap between the status quo, the way the world is, there's a gap between that and then there's the, and then the thoughts of people, the thoughts that people are actually having in their heads. And so what do you see when you go to a YouTube video and you look at the comments of, of you know, some hot song or you see uh, a comedy bit that's being shared all over the place? What do you see in the comments? People in the YouTube watching the the YouTube music video are saying, oh, wow, this song just really says the thing that I would like to be able to say. Or with a comedian, oh, I've, I've thought that so many times, I just never put it into words. Or with books, you see that in the Amazon reviews. Oh, I love how this book really just put into words this, these things that I've known all along. Um, and so if you can tell, put into writing, put into art, something that somebody's already thinking, but that they haven't been able to put into, to communicate into, into words or to communicate into anything tangible beyond their own amorphous thoughts, uh, they will forever be grateful for you, uh, to you. And, but another thing that's going on there is that notice when a vacuum gets punctured, it's explosive. And the reason it's explosive is because a lot of people are all thinking the same thing, but they haven't nobody's put it into words. Nobody's been able to express it. But that person who comes along and who does express it, all those people are just so grateful. And it's a, just like if you were to puncture a vacuum, it, it deflates. Once it happens, you can't really follow up and be the, the, the second to, to, to come along with it. So the thing is that because when you consume art that says something that's already in your brain, you're very appreciative of it. Well, what if you were the person who could take that amorphous thought and turn it into something for somebody? And I think that this is something that we all have chatter in our heads all day long. We're thinking little things. We're not really even paying attention to it. Um, in part because of cultural programming, because we don't want to be out of line um, oh, that's just a stupid idea or, you know, what, what have you. And so I think that this is actually one of the great sources of great art is just to be paying attention to that internal chatter, that internal voice. And Hey, write those things down. Maybe you're not publishing it yet, but you're at least like putting it down a little bit and, and, and developing it. And this is something I'm constantly reminding myself to do because I'll often have thoughts and they'll just pass right by. And I'll, and I'll say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. What did you write in the heart to start? Listen to the voice. Write that down. You know, you don't have to write a whole blog post about it right now. Just write it down. You can get back to it later. You might have something there. So yeah, totally. I think that's such an important note to make. Is like all the ideas I've had for either the blog, the podcast, or the social media uh, the first idea is like, oh, that's dumb. I shouldn't do it. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe I should do it. And then it's like, oh, I'll try it. 
And then once I actually started doing it, it's like people actually like it. And it's like, oh, what do you know? It was a good idea from the start. <laughs> Just got to listen to the voice yeah. sometimes. I mean, I, the more that I, I feel like the more that I have an idea and I think, oh, that's dumb. <laughs> that's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> totally. uh, yeah. It means it'll work. So uh, I know a lot of people that are starting out on the creative journey, uh, they, tr- they prevent themselves from doing work because they want their work to be perfect. But you talk about the importance of giving yourself permission to suck. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I, I came to realize at some point, this is a problem I think a lot of people have, um, that was a bit of, of a perfectionist. That, uh, And this is another ego um, defense mechanism, is perfectionism is that if you're a perfectionist, you haven't even started that blog post or you haven't shipped that blog post because you're still working on it maybe in your head. You got to get a few more things right. You got to do a little bit more research. You know, you'll get around to it that way. And hey, all along, you haven't shipped it. You haven't had a chance for it to fail. You haven't you haven't had that uncomfortable feeling of, oh, no, I just got an idea out there. What's next? Um, and it's a comforting feeling. And I find that a great way to get around that is to give myself permission to suck. Actually, I saw a, uh, a masterclass ad recently. I can't believe I like saw something cool in an ad. Uh, I can't remember who it was. He was talking about how Aerosmith apparently had, uh, this exercise they called dare to suck where they would go into a room and purposefully try to come up with bad songs or bad ideas and bad lyrics. And yeah, a lot of times it's not so good, but every once in a while you get something really brilliant out of it. Um, but I think that giving yourself permission to suck is great because one, it's, it's, it's the permission part. It is saying, hey, it's okay that you're going to make something that's, that's, that's not good. It's not up to your standards. But then it has this sort of motivational judo element to it where once you've put out the thing that sucks, whether it's published on your blog or whether it's in your private notebook, well, just the, the mere fact that it's out there, suddenly you start tweaking it. You start iterating on it. You start making it a little bit better. And it turns out that the work that you were doing when you were trying to suck turned out to be pretty good because you made it better. Why'd you make it better? Because you're a perfectionist. And so if you can just like give yourself the mound of clay on the table, um, just because it's there, you are going to naturally want to, to make it better. So uh, you, you can't get good at anything without first being bad at it. And so this idea that we're going to do something on the very first try, it's going to be perfect. It's just insane it's it's completely delusional and it is uh it is self-protection it is the ego uh protecting the self from the the discomfort of doing something that isn't up to its standards totally yeah and if you you just think about it from like a logical standpoint like you're just starting off you're doing something that's brand new of course you're gonna suck at it like, why would you expect anything yeah. else? <laughs> yeah. Obviously. So um, there's also another problem that a lot of creators face is that they dream too big. And you call this like the fortress fallacy and how that could back- backfire. I'd love to, if you could expand on that. Yeah. So dreams can be great. Dreams can be a great guiding star. 
you can have a vision and you can have that vision give you a sense of direction or inspiration to, to move forward. But 10 times out of nine, that vision that you have is way beyond your abilities. You can't possibly, um, if you've never been a writer, you can't sit down one afternoon and write a book. Maybe somebody can do it if they're really lucky, but it's probably not going to happen. So what should you do? You're envisioning a fortress. You're envisioning a big, giant, complicated construction project. And you haven't even built a cottage. You haven't even built a lean-to. And this is different from permission to suck. This isn't necessarily about quality. This is about scale. And so if you're thinking about writing a book, but you haven't written a blog post, start with a blog post. If you haven't written a blog post, hey, start with a tweet. Um, actually, this is something that I do now with a lot of the ideas that I, I have is that I'll develop it as a tweet first. And then after a tweet, it becomes an email in my Love Mondays email. And after being an email in my Love Mondays email, it becomes a, a podcast episode on Love Your Work. And then after it becomes a podcast episode, uh, well, then maybe if it does well, then maybe it'll become a book. Uh, giving yourself little tiny projects that have some skill transfer between uh, doing the tiny project and doing the, the big vision that you have in your mind. Go ahead, keep the fortress in your minds, but eh, build a cottage first. Yeah, I think it's, that's a great example. Like you could have this big dream, but don't let it stop you from like starting and like break it down to smaller goals that you could accomplish. And that way you, you actually see your progress towards that goal. Because if you just have this big dream, I want to build a mansion, you know, it's, that's not going to happen in a day. You have to do a brick by brick and it's a slow process, but you could make a lot of progress on it. Wait, no, I, I want to even counter that is that you're talking about building a mansion and breaking it down into uh, like a series of steps. You got to do it brick by brick. I'm talking about before building the mansion, you do an even smaller project that is cohesive, that is shippable, because one of the challenging things, and, and I agree, like breaking something down into, into steps obviously is, is, a, is a good thing to do, but the, uh, the thing that can happen if you're looking at the mansion and you're trying to build it brick by brick is that there's an element to creating art, um, shipping, Right, like you ship a lot. You are putting stuff out on Instagram all the time. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of people who are talking about their Instagram page over a beer, and you know they'll just never get around to it, right? And and so like even having a small project uh, that you can do, like before you build the mansion, it, you build a doghouse for your dog, uh, and it's shipped. Like it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like, I think that that's actually a really important part of overcoming this fortress fallacy. Totally. I think that's some great advice. And um, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned uh, motivational uh, judo. I wonder if you could touch a little bit more on that. Yeah. So motivational judo is based around what I know, at least about the martial art of judo, which is that whatever energy your opponent comes at with you, you use that energy against your opponent. If your opponent throws a punch, you use the energy of that punch to throw your opponent 
in the direction that that punch was going. Your opponent has already provided much of the energy uh, required to to throw them over your back onto the mat. Um, and so motivational judo is taking your motivational opponents, your your opponents in your mind, and using those uh, the energy of those opponents against them. So we talked about permission to suck, which is if you're a perfectionist, uh, you are, you want to make things perfect and better, et cetera. But if you don't ever get anything out there, you don't get a chance to do that. And so if you get something out there, then the perfectionist will take over and you'll, 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 you'll get some, some movement there. Another one that I really like, uh, for me that works is called the 10 minute hack. And this is something that I did a lot when I was first writing my first book with very little experience as a writer, uh, was I would set a timer for 10 minutes and I would say, hey, you just have to write for 10 minutes. And um, and then when you're done, you can go do whatever you want. It's just you have to write for 10 minutes. You can't take a sip of coffee. Uh, you, you, you can't uh, you can't wash. You can't clean your glasses. You can't do whatever. Just do that for 10 minutes. Well, anybody can do that for 10 minutes. And if, if 10 minutes is too long for whatever it is, make it two minutes, make it 20 seconds. Anybody can do it for 10 minutes. And so there is a little bit of. Um, bypassing the ego because the ego is sort of like, yeah, okay. What? 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Fine. Uh, we can do that. Like actually, um, admitting to yourself that you couldn't do 10 minutes would be more painful. Um, th- than, um, e- than, than doing the 10 minutes. So it's easier to do the 10 minutes. So you do the 10 minutes, but what happens is then you get into it. Uh, and so you bypass the ego and at the end of 10 minutes, you're like, Oh, yeah, I guess I could keep going. And next thing you know, you've gone for 20 minutes, you've gone for 30 minutes, you've gone for an hour. I would very often have two hour writing sessions that started with a 10 minute timer. And that was my best motivational judo move. And so it's something you you need to know your yourself uh, a, a bit. It, it, it's, a, it's an advanced uh, procrastination uh, stopping method is that you have to know enough about the ways that you fool yourself. You have to know enough about the things that your ego does to hold you back to be able to bypass those things. You know, somebody like uh, Manish Sethi uh, runs Pavlock, which is a wristband that shocks you. And, you know, he uses this this shocking thing to, like, make bets with people. Oh, if I don't do this, um, then you can shock me. You know, like the threat of punishment works for him. For me, it's the 10-minute hack. You have to understand yourself and the way that you trick yourself, and you have to come up with some method uh, that will bypass whatever nonsense uh, your ego is throwing at you. I, I think that's some great advice, and uh, I give similar advice when people ask me, hey, I want to read. How do I start reading? Because that's usually my hardest obstacle. And I tell them, just read for two minutes, because the hardest part is just opening the book. Once you like start reading, you're going to probably continue reading. And then, you know, a lot of people have told me that works great. So I'm happy that you could also use it towards creative projects. I want to add to that, actually. Um, you know, several years ago when I really decided that I wanted to start reading more, I uh, what I did is I just went to the library and I picked up a whole bunch of books, paper books. I, I'm now mostly a Kindle person um, since I live in Colombia, but just paper books. And I strew, I, I, I spread them out on my coffee table. And I would say to myself, okay, well, look, look, just which book is calling out to me? And I'd pick up that book and I'd look at the table of contents. 
oh, which chapter is calling out to me? I'll go, go to that chapter. I think chapter heads would look interesting. And if I got bored, I'd close that book. What's the next book that's calling out to me? And basically, I think I've heard Naval talk about this, Naval Ravikant, uh, is, that, is that in this world where you are um, surrounded by social media, where you're surrounded by these quick hits of dopamine, what chance does a book stand um, in getting you to, to begin? And so what, what you can do instead is give yourself permission, permission to suck, permission to treat a book the same way you would treat a Facebook post or an Instagram post or a, or a TikTok, uh, a TikTok, what I don't know what we call things on TikTok, but, uh, and just give yourself permission to open up a page, read it. If you get bored, move on to another page. But there's something about the design of a book that is such that eventually you're going to get sucked into one of these pages. And it's actually through that, that, uh, I really got myself reading was by giving myself uh, that permission to treat uh, books as if they were, uh, you know, throwaway social media posts or, or, or whatever. So that's a motivational judo move in itself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some great advice. So we've talked about motivational judo, uh, listening to the voice, following your curiosity. I'm sure there's at least one listener right now who's still hesitant to like start their creative project. What's like one more piece of advice you would give them? It's tough to say, you know, it, 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 it's, it's all in the book. Uh, I, I think, I just think that, and I could be wrong, but I, I feel like if you want to be a better person, there's no avenue better than to create something than to create your art because there's just a built in accountability to it. And that it's, it's hard to do. It requires a lot of self knowledge and, uh, and to, to be successful at it, you have to overcome a lot of the sort of mental distortions that we all struggle with day to day. And there's hardly any motivation stronger than wanting to succeed at this thing is, that is so uniquely yours. And so it's one of the only things that's powerful enough to pull you past the distortions that ego uh, will put upon you. So I guess that's it. I think that's a wonderful piece of advice. So um, the closing question I asked all my guests are, uh, what are one or two books that had a huge impact on you and how did they change your life? Yeah, um, I think one of them was probably predictably irrational. Uh, it is a, Dan Ariely, and uh, I actually had the privilege of working with Dan on an app, uh, a productivity app called Timeful, which we later sold to Google and some of the features that we uh, built are in Google Calendar. Um, but long before that, I discovered Dan's work. And uh, it's actually very applicable to uh, overcoming creative procrastination uh, because, you know, it's it's about behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is, is basically a counter to this idea of traditional economics of that, that we make all of our decisions based upon cost and benefit, based upon scarcity. Um, uh, and, and it... Uh, behavioral economics puts this other layer on things, which is, it, which is that, yeah, there might be cost benefit, but there's also 
all these mental biases that are in place. And I think that that is, that applies a lot to uh, procrastinating on creating your art is that it's something that has a tremendous benefit, but in the moment that you sit down and try to do it, the cost can seem so high that you can't get yourself to do this thing. And so the more that you understand, um, the, the ways that we even deceive ourselves, like his second book was, uh, um, the honest, honest truth about dishonesty. And I've written about that a little bit in the heart to start about sort of the ways that we will kind of tell lies without even being aware that we're doing it because it helps us again, maintain this positive self perception that our ego is constantly helping us with. And so I, I find it I find it really fascinating. I, I don't put a ton of that science directly in my writing, but it's all underpinning it is how are what sort of the what are the lies that we're telling ourselves? Uh, what are the things that we aren't able to see? Uh, and so what are some ways that we can uh, find some leverage, uh, find a handhold, and uh, you know throw procrastination on its back? Right. And I think those are two wonderful uh, books that you just recommended. So I'm sure listeners want to learn more about you. They want to follow you on social media. Where's the, where was the best place for people to go? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, find me on Twitter at at Cadaby, K-A-D as in David, A-V as in Victor, Y. Uh, on Instagram, I am the same. And since you listen to podcasts, you would probably love my podcast. It's called Love Your Work. It's available wherever you get podcasts. And uh, you mentioned a little bit before we started recording, you're writing a new book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the book that I have coming up, roughly 10 years in the making, uh, is called Mind Management, Not Time Management. And it is based upon this idea that time management is is actually a relatively new concept. It is a a concept that has come from the industrial age where we have decided that time is this resource that we need to manage, that the more time we put into something, the more output we'll, we'll get out of it. That is not true, especially in this world where if you can do it step by step, there's no point in learning how to do it. In this world of being creative, time one unit of time in does not equal one unit of, of output. And I think that a different paradigm with which to think about how to uh, manage what we have in this life is to think about how we can manage our, our, our mental energy, even more specifically, our creative energy. So it's all about how to optimize the use of your energy to create, to put that unique thing into the world that only you can put into the world. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a fantastic uh, book, and I'm definitely going to be a, a reader, and I look forward to checking out that book. And, um, yeah, it's David, coming out in fall. Awesome. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for coming today to talk about your book, The Heart to Start. David, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Reader's Journey. You can learn more about what was covered in today's podcast in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best way you can support it is by subscribing and leaving a positive review. If you're looking for book reviews and recommendations, head over to alexandbooks.com. 
If you want to join my reading journey, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Alex and Books. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you soon. Read on, everyone.